We're studying Joseph, the faithful father. Uh, just in case you hadn't seen it, this great art uh, shows uh, that Jose Portillo did. This, um, this is Joseph's outline here and then the silhouette of his, his stepson, the newborn Jesus. Just beautiful. Speaking of great art, a few days ago I shared with all of you how smitten I am over Vincenzo de Rossi's uh, powerful statue that stands guard at the Parthenon in Rome. Uh, when you walk in there to the left, you'll see this statue, and it's just... It just is a great, great piece. Jared Coe got that photo for us. And, and after I shared that, it's fascinating. For the last two weeks, I have received so many wonderful uh, notes from people that, uh, that have been struck by Joseph. It, 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 it seems that uh, studying Joseph at Christmas time is kind of like buying a new car. You never noticed that car before? You ever notice that you buy a new car, you've never seen that kind before, and now suddenly they're everywhere on the road. You know, like, oh, there's another one, there's another one. Hey, nice car. And it's like that with Joseph. So here's just a couple. I've gotten all these wonderful pieces of art of Joseph, uh, a pastor that studies with us in East Texas. He sent this picture. Um, it's by Roger Loveless. It's a painting. Really captures, look at the big the big uh, worker hands of Joseph and the, the way that he is uh, looking so serious and guarding and, and being obedient, which is exactly what he is, remarkably obedient person, just powerful. And, uh, and Fran Legband of our pulpit team sent me a fantastic poem by Mary Patrice Wooling. Uh, li- listen to this. This is really well done. He scrubbed the trough and filled it with fresh hay. The midnight sky was bright and hard and raw, The constellations danced above cold clay. That night the heavens put on a display that froze wise man and shepherd mute with awe. He scrubbed the trough and filled it with fresh hay and wondered how long they would have to stay in Bethlehem fulfilling Caesar's law. That night the heavens put on a display while Herod hoped the magi would betray the child sleeping snugly in the straw. He scrubbed the trough and filled it with fresh hay. Too cold and busy to kneel down to pray, his fingers stiff and wet would need to thaw. That night the heavens put on a display. And by the way, I couldn't get all of it in there, but this last stanza I put in your notes that's inside your worship guide you got when you came in. While Joseph worked and watched as Mary lay and nursed the baby, sheep and oxen saw he scrubbed the trough and filled it with fresh hay. The constellations danced above cold clay. Fran and I were especially taken with the cadence in that poem. There's a cadence that builds power in the tempo. Joseph's strong hands scrubbing, preparing for Messiah. His focus is not, and I think the poet captures this nicely, focus is not on self. It is exclusively on Jesus. And and look at the context of Joseph's focus. This is well done. The heavens put on display. The constellations dance, but earth is cold clay. What an image Cold clay and dancing heaven are really significant to understand Joseph in his context. Let me show you. Uh, As we point out in your notes, we need to start way back with the Davidic line and the Davidic prophecies. If we're going to understand Joseph, we've got to start back here. So open your Bible to chapter 7 of the Prince of the Prophets, Isaiah. We find very important background on Messiah's promise in Isaiah chapter 7. Go to Isaiah 7, and we're going to read starting at verse 1. This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Aram's king Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, son of Remaliah, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. Okay, little context here. Um, uh, Ahaz is the king of a southern Jewish state called Judah. Judah. What's the name of the southern Jewish state? 
you're brilliant. Okay, good, you got it, all right. What had happened was after Solomon, many, many years before this, after Solomon, the Israeli kingdom had collapsed into two parts, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom, which kept the name of Israel. By the way, it's often called Ephraim as well after the, one of the biggest tribes that was there. So, so Ephraim or Israel, got that one? Okay, so Israel is uh, King Pekah, son of Remaliah. What is Aram? Aram is Syria, okay? It, it, it's kind of confusing when you read ancient manuscripts. Syria will be called three things. It'll be called Syria, Aram, or Damascus, which is to this day the capital of Syria. So it'll be called one of those things. So you've got this, this king of Syria, Aram, and the king of, of Israel, Ephraim, that are coming to attack Jerusalem, okay? But they were not able to conquer it. Now, pick it up. Verse 2. Um, when it became known to the house of David, that means the ruling family, the ruling line, Ahaz and his family, that Aram had occupied Ephraim, meaning those armies had come together and they were coming, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. Isn't that a great picture? The Lord said to Isaiah, the prophet, Go out with your son Shear Yashub to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. By the way, those of you that have been to Jerusalem, that is almost exactly where there's a church today called the Church of St. Anne uh, at the pools of Bethesda. It's the same spot. Okay? Uh, say to him, calm down and be quiet. Love that. Calm down. Don't be afraid or cowardly because these two smoldering sticks, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remaliah. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has plotted harm against you. They say, let us go up against Judah, terrorize it, conquer it for ourselves. Then we can call Tabail's son as king in it. This is what the Lord God says, it will not happen. It will not occur. The chief city of Aram is Damascus. Chief of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. Chief city of Ephraim is Samaria. That's the capital of that northern kingdom of Israel. And the chief of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And then this, this is worth memorizing, boys and girls. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol, the place of the dead, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I love this. I... I, I will not test the Lord. And he probably posed for a photo op as he said it. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough that you try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he'll be eating curds and honey, typical food for someone who is entering their, uh, their age of accountability, 12 or 13. For before this boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been seen since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Oh, this is so fun. There is a double reference going on here, okay? There's two prophecies that are given to you in what you just read. Let's look at the situation, okay? Chapter 7, verse 2 describes Israel, that's this, the northern kingdom, and Syria, the kingdom of Aram, Damascus, Syria, trying to destroy not only Judah and not only Jerusalem and not just Ahaz. They're trying to destroy the entire royal line of David. Okay, they want to kill off the, the, those who have the right to reign from Jerusalem. And in verse 3, Isaiah is sent by God to go out and meet Ahaz by the launderer's field. In verses 4 through 6, he describes the whole plot, and he tells Ahaz to chill out. 
Quit fearing. Now, Isaiah is told to take along his son. By the way, his son, She'er Yashub, means um, a remnant will return. So this is encouragement. Look, they're not going to stop. A remnant will always return. Then in verse 6, oh my goodness, Isaiah really is a genius of a writer. The Hebrew here is just fantastic. God has him play on the name of the usurper. Aram and Israel had come up with some guy, the son of Tabe'il, who was to be put on the throne. This usurper they were going to set as a puppet on the throne of Judah, right? But, but Isaiah doesn't say son of Tabe'il. That would be the, the normal way to say it. He reverses it and says Tabe'il's son, which it doesn't work in English, but in Hebrew, that puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Uh, when you do it that way, the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And so he does it that way so that it changes. Tabe'il means that, uh, that God is good. The name Tabe'il means God is good. When you put Tabe'il's son, it comes out as good for nothing. That's just genius. It's so cool. They are good for nothing. Any conspiracy to topple the Davidic covenant is good for nothing, right? In summary, Syria... Northern Jewish kingdom of Israel, they're conspiring to destroy the southern kingdom and ruin the entire line of David. It won't work because they are good for nothing and a remnant will always remain. All God's people said, amen. All right, now let's look at the signs. God pushes Ahaz to ask for a sign. Uh, ask for a sign. Those of you who are well-versed in the Bible, is this a healthy thing? Is this the biblical norm? Is this something people should do? Should we be asking for signs? Please say no, please. Okay, no, no, it's not. It's a, it's, a, it's a very odd thing to do until you realize that Ahaz is a liar. And he's a liar who thinks he can fool God. Here's what had been happening. You see, Ahaz, and he didn't think God knew this somehow, Ahaz had actually been sending letters all the way up to this guy. He'd sent emissaries and gifts, big gifts, to the Assyrian Empire, to the emperor of Assyria, asking for his help against this conspiracy of kings. God says, I'm going to give you a sign so you can trust Yahweh instead of Assyria. Ahaz, this is the best moment in the whole passage, Ahaz, who is a serial idolater, Okay, Ahaz never met an idol he didn't like, okay? Ahaz is a serial idolater. All of a sudden, he remembers Deuteronomy 6.16. He somehow remembers it. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, don't test the Lord your God, don't ask for a sign. So he suddenly remembers this, like, I will not test the Lord my God, right? And, and God says, you stinking liar. This is ridiculous. By the way, by the way, Deuteronomy says don't ask for a sign. It doesn't say there's anything wrong with receiving one that God offers gratis, right? That's okay. So God gives him a sign despite Ahaz's fake protest, and there are two signs, two signs. The first one, the first sign in verses 13 and 14, this is really important. Please listen. The, the, God shifts to a plural you. All of Israel, everything... Everything up to that point in the passage had been a singular you. I know it's the same in English. Uh, until we finally win and Texas convinced the English-speaking world to adopt y'all as a plural you, there's no plural you in English, so it's not there. But in, but in the Greek, there is, I mean, in the Hebrew, there is. There is a plural you here. It makes a massive difference. This is not spoken like everything else in the passage has been to a singular person. This is spoken to all people. Um, by the way, see or behold, you see that in verse 14? That's a term that you use to call attention to an event. Now, the event can be past, it can be present, it can be future. But get this, when, when that word is used with a present participle, as it is here, if you don't remember seventh grade English, just trust me. When it's used with a present participle as here, it always indicates a future event. Always future. So Emmanuel, God with us, the conception and birth described in verse 14, they are future from Ahaz's perspective. 
All of Judah would have read this and understood this is predictive prophecy that is intended for everyone of all times. Further, verse 14 uses the definite article V with the virgin. When, when, when no immediate antecedent is there, by the way, is there any virgin there with them at the launder's field? Are we told there's no, there's no one there? So who's the virgin? Well, when you don't have a, a definite antecedent in the passage right there, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to think about um, the principle of what's called common reference uh, or previous reference. What is the virgin in Hebrew thought? Well, the only virginal birth that was understood and accepted by all Jews is the one referenced in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, we're told that the seed of the woman, the curse has just come on mankind because of sin, God says, but the seed of the woman will crush Satan. Crush him underneath your feet. Oh, it could be a song. Anyway, the seed of the woman. Now, here's what's fascinating. The rabbis noticed wisely that it only says seed of the woman. That's very strange. People come from seed of woman and man. Since it only mentioned seed of woman, it had become very common practice that the rabbis taught by this time that Genesis 3 indicates a future miraculous virginal conception and birth. Got it? All that's going on in Isaiah 7. As usual, our brother Arnold Fruchtenbaum hits the nail on the head. I, I quoted Arnold in your notes. I put it in there. The key point of this should not be missed. God was promising that the house of David could not be deposed or lose its identity until the birth of a virgin-born son. This was clearly future from Ahaz's day and would require that Messiah, by the way, he had to be born prior to the destruction of the temple and all the genealogical records in 70 A.D. It beautifully describes how dancing heaven is going to interact with cold clay. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, that only covers one of the two prophecies spoken to Ahaz. The second promise is in verse 15. Uh, by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he'll be eating curds and honey. Typical, typical thing that was eaten at that time at the age of accountability. Uh, before, before the boy knows how to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. Here's the second prophecy. Now get this. The text here switches back to a singular you. It goes back to you, not y'all anymore. The first promise that the line of David will be fulfilled through a virgin-born son, it used the plural you. That's a statement for all of Judah forever. The second promise comes with a textual shift. It goes back to the singular. This is directed only to King Ahaz. And there is, again, a definite article before the he. So it's the boy. Who's the boy? Who's the only boy there, we're told in the context? Who is it? Yeah, Isaiah's son. Take your son, She'ar Yashub. So they're talking about Isaiah's son. He's the only boy there. It's not a baby. It doesn't use the word baby like the first one did. God is declaring that Israel and Syria will have their kings deposed before She'ar Yashub reaches the age of accountability, which in that era was about 12 years old. So we got two promises in Isaiah chapter 7. All of Judah is promised a deliverer who would be born to the Genesis 3 predicted virgin in the future. Turns out that had to be before 70 A.D., we know now. Second promise, Ahaz is told someone, we know now it was Assyria, would within a few years dethrone the two kingdoms that were currently plotting against Israel. Isn't that cool? Now, Joseph plays a significant and underappreciated role in this first promise of Isaiah. To see how, let's discuss the headline on the right side of our notes. Go to the right side of your notes, the background on Messiah's family lines. This, this is really significant. The New Testament starts off with a genealogy. Matthew, the first book of your New Testament. Why don't you turn there? Let's leave Isaiah. Let's go to Matthew. It starts off with a genealogy of Jesus. We're going to just read the book. It's all brilliant to study. We're just going to read the bookends today. Verse 1, 
an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes through all the way from, from Abraham all the way through, and we're going to pick it up at verse 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. What is your racial background? Uh, my, my, anybody want to vote? Mine, mine is a, uh, a mix of Irish, actually Scotch-Irish, and, uh, and Choctaw Indian. What about you? What's your, what's your racial background? Anybody got a fairly established bloodline, if I can use Narnian terms? German and something else. German and something else. That's right. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Sehr German. That's good. Um, yes, what is yours? Alaskan Native, Filipino, and Hispanic. Alaskan Native, Filipino, and Hispanic. Basically, all of the Pacific. From South America all the way up. That's brilliant. Very good. Very good. Who else? Somebody else. What's your racial background? Anybody else? Yeah, what do you got? Spanish Italian. Right. So, in other words, Napoleon conquered you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's it. Yeah, okay. Now, when we, thank you. So, when we think about these things today, um, we tend to, especially in America, we don't tend to care about them as much about race, uh, the great American melting pot, but we do care about them because of genetic issues. Uh, those of you who were adopted, uh, as you became adults, you began to care very much about what your birth family was like because you wanted to know what, the, what genetic markers do I have? What do I need to look out for? Your doctor cared about that very much. And that's fine. That is not at all what, what the Jews care about. What the Jews cared about and do care about is something much, much bigger. They are absorbed into family lines because there are specific promises that are made about the Messiah and about Israel for the future. And those have to do with family lines. It's obvious Matthew chapter 1 is tracing Joseph's family tree. But there is a vital subtlety that is not evident in the English. Uh, I want you to look at the, at, up here at the slide. The who in verse 16 is feminine in the Greek text. Feminine. I know, I know. We don't do feminine and masculine in English. Thank God, right? We don't do that. By the way, you said Germany. When I lived in Germany, uh, they have four words for thee uh, that all start with D. Actually, there's eight if you do the other. But anyway, I could never keep them straight. I mean, I could never keep them straight. So I'm working at the camp with all my staff, and I'm just, I can't, I just keep saying the feminine one for the masculine when they're laughing at me and all that. And then I figured out the Germans were so smart that if you just made a duh noise, they would fill in the right one themselves. <laughs> so I just walked around all the time saying duh, ich, duh, duh, Christ, duh, and, and just, duh, and they were like, your German is so good. How do you, uh, it's, it's a gift. I figured it out. Okay. So this one, <laughs> this one is feminine. That's really telling. It's also very abnormal because the masculine form is what you would use. Always the masculine form is what you use. You've got, you've got a male and a female who are parents, and you use the masculine form. Who would be masculine? But it's feminine only. Why? Why is it feminine, everybody? Anybody know? That's right. Mary is the only biological parent of Jesus. She is the only parent and Matthew's pointing that out. Of course, I know what you're thinking. At that point, you're asking um, in your Professor Hinkle, the magician voice, why is that such a big deal? Great question. Thank you for asking. It's because Joseph's wing of the Davidic line was under a curse. Let, let, let me explain. Jeconiah is a guy. He's called by a couple different names in the Old Testament. But Jeconiah, he is uh, one of the kings of Judah. He's one of Joseph's forefathers. And look what Matthew, verse 12, Matthew tells us this. Um, After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, and so on down to Joseph. Why does that matter? Because everyone descended from Jeconiah was under a curse pronounced by Jeremiah. Jeremiah 22. This is what the Lord says. 
None of his descendants, Jeconiah's descendants, will succeed in sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Jerusalem. That line is cut off. There were many, many branches that came from David. This particular one, Jeconiah, Joseph's branch, it was cursed. Now, Luke relates the genealogy of Jesus from Mary's perspective, Mary's line. Look, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, which we all know makes everybody wonder in your uh, Frosty the Snowman voice, happy birthday. Why does it say thought to be? Great observation, Frosty. Thank you. It comes down to a grammatical difference between English and Koine Greek. Once again, just tell me this. Is it proper in English to say the son of the Joseph? the son of the Heli. Would it be proper of you to say, Wayne, the son of the Benny? That sounds weird, doesn't it? It's the exact opposite in Koine Greek. It sounds weird not to say the the in front of the name. You always said the the. Now, they don't, they don't put that in the English because it would, it would read very strangely to us, but that's what's there in the text, except for one name. In this whole line, in Luke's gospel, every name has the in front of it except one. Anybody want to guess what name it was? Joseph. The lack of a the in front of Joseph would have been a clear tip-off to any classical reader. Oh, this is describing the line of his wife, not of Joseph. That's why, that's why the English translators added the thought to be. Thought to be is not there in the text, but it was better than saying, there's no the here, and it's a big deal. So they just put thought to be, right? Here's Dr. Fruchtenbaum's analysis. Every single name in Luke's genealogy is preceded by the definite article except one, the name of Joseph. Someone reading the original language could tell by the missing article, this is not really Joseph's line, it's the line of his wife, Miriam. It's no accident that the Talmud, collection of Jewish writings, refers to Miriam as the daughter of Heli. It was not actually his genealogy, but instead that of his wife. Cool. But of course, you are pondering in your Jimmy Durante imitation Frosty the stone. What difference does that make? Thank you, Jimmy. So glad you asked. Listen, these genealogies give us two huge points. Jesus is the legitimate heir of David outside the curse. Yes, Joseph's line, Jeconiah, Jesus is the heir of David outside that. Number two, Jesus is the legitimate son of God because he had no earthly father. No earthly father. One last bit of context. I, I know this is a lot, but it, it will help us see how the heavens put on a, dis, a display, the constellations danced and changed the cold clay of earth. I want us to examine the background of Messiah's character. Matthew 1, Luke 3 use very specific terms. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of whom, everybody? Abraham. And then Luke says, the son of Adam, the son of whom? God. Son of David. That means Messiah is king. Christ, by the way, Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He is the king. Son of Abraham is next. Now that means Jesus, he's a Jew, but he's a Jew in the covenant of grace. You see, to be a son of Abraham is different than just being a son of Moses, a Jew under the Mosaic law. The Abrahamic covenant goes on forever. It is unilateral. It is upheld by God alone, through faith alone. It is a covenant of grace. So, so Jesus is not merely a Jew. He is related to Abraham through Isaac, but he is part of the covenant of God's grace. And in fact, when you, when you study Matthew, you're going to find Matthew goes to great pains to show that Jesus has fulfilled that Mosaic covenant. He's done what was promised. It has its terminus, and he is the fulfillment. And everyone who trusts in him, he takes to the covenant of grace through faith. He takes to Abraham. All God's people said, amen. Son of Adam, that's the very first word in Luke 3.38. It means Yeshua is human. 
He's fully man, very human, and that's followed by Son of God. He is deity. He's God. So in summary, this child over whom Joseph has given responsibility, he is the Jewish God-man, King of grace. How can Joseph handle the weight of all that background? The, the, all that prophecy, all that character, how could you handle that? Joseph's response, I, I think, is really going to bless you and amaze you. Matthew 1 contains, a, you're still in Matthew 1, right? Matthew 1 contains the first part of his response. Go to verse 20. Verse 20 in Matthew chapter 1. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And here he quotes Isaiah that we read earlier. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, which means Savior. Verse 20 is so full. Look at verse 20. It, by the way, you can only catch the power of the angel's statement here if you go through all the background that we just did. Joseph is indeed son of David, but you know, he knows, the angel knows, he's not the point. His line is cut off, but that doesn't keep him from being a great father. Look what it says. Joseph is expected to name the boy. In that culture, that means he accepted full responsibility for the protection and the development and the training of this child. When you give a name, it means you have a relationship and you are dedicated to seeing that person prosper. By the way, that hasn't changed that much. Anybody, anybody here ever have a, um, a coach or a teacher or somebody you really respect to give you a nickname? Anybody raise your hand you ever were given a nickname? Yeah, okay, sure. And, and, and when that person gave you that nickname, that was a way of showing kinship with you. We're going to make something of you. We're going to develop you. We're gonna... Now, there is the opposite. It happened in that culture. It happens in ours. And that's the ugly bully nickname, which is where you try and control somebody by giving them an ugly name to control by exclusion. But Joseph, son of David, is not a bully. He gives the greatest name of all, Jesus, Savior, to Emmanuel. And in calling, think about this. In calling him Jesus, Joseph is reminded that salvation will not come through his blood. It will only come through his stepson's. Joseph accepted that. He obeyed. Look at these verses. They indicate that everything in his life points to Messiah. That's what matters. That's what's going to change other lives. L listen, listen again to Ms. Willing's stanzas. While Joseph worked and watched as Mary lay and nursed the baby, sheep and oxen saw he scrubbed the trough and filled it with fresh hay. The constellations danced above cold clay. Will we be like Joseph Will we continually decrease that he might increase? Is that our focus? Are we going to work hard to, to help dancing heaven change this cold earth? What say you, church? And actually, before you answer, I should ask, instead of saying, will we be like Joseph, I should say, will we be like Jesus? And this is fascinating. There's a beautiful situational irony here. Joseph's surrender is actually in imitation of the one to whom he's surrendering. It's an imitation of his stepson. David Wade of our pulpit team explains. We were talking about this, and David wrote me, wrote me this. He said, Wayne, Joseph imitates Jesus. Philippians 2.7 describes Jesus as the one who made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Wow, David says, this is hard for us humans to do. Like Jesus, who surrendered glory for a trough, 
Joseph was all about serving God out of faith with nothing in it for me. He scrubbed the trough. May we all be that way. All God's people said? About 100 years ago, there was a young mom in West London named uh, Kate Wilkinson, and she read that same passage, Philippians 2, that David's talking about, and, and she was so moved, she wrote a poem in response. It's a powerful summary of Joseph's focus, Joseph's surrender. Um, I think this fits Joseph very, very well. I'd like you to read with me. You read the underlined part. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His love and power controlling all I do and say. May the Word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through His power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. Thank you. Joseph willingly surrenders to the mind of Christ. Now, Mark chapter 6 contains Joseph's second response. He apprentices his stepson. He develops him. Look, look, Mark 6. He, the adult Jesus, left there, this place where he had been, and he came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? They said, what is this wisdom that's been given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, son of Mary, brother James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Oh, it could have been from our age. People are always offended. They were offended. What we translate carpenter in verse 3 is the word tecton. Tecton is a, a, general, a general word for builder. Tectons worked with wood or with stone. In fact, in Israel, where there is not a lot of wood, they almost always worked with stone. It's very likely that Jesus and his father would have worked on this town. Scytopolis was a, uh, a Greco-Roman city. It was the boom town, very close to Nazareth. All the tecton in the area uh, worked there, and they would have dressed stone and worked in stone there. Jesus must have entered apprenticeship at 13. Otherwise, he would never be called tecton. Notice that they are shocked by his knowledge and wisdom. Why? Because Jesus never followed a rabbi in higher education. A few days ago, we covered the, the normal flow of schooling uh, for Jews. Always remember this. Post-exile Jews were the very first people in human history to, to practice compulsory public education. Okay? And here's how it flowed. Somewhere between five and seven years old, dependent on each child, each family, every child entered synagogue school. They studied for years there. When the student turned 10, he or she could enter Bet Midrash. Most students did. That's secondary school. Older students learned the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the rabbinic traditions. At 12 or 13, it was different with each kid, at the, at the age of accountability for what they'd been learning, a child was considered subject to the commandments. Today we'd call that a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. Uh, they didn't use those terms then, but that was the idea. Now at that point, most students, almost all students, left and went to work and they were apprenticed. They only attended school on occasion. That must be Jesus, that must be what he did. Otherwise, he would never be called tecton. He's called tecton because he did the apprenticeship under a, a carpenter, a tecton, okay? But 
top education began at 13. There were few, and I mean very few students, male students could apply for these special positions. They could apply and ask to please follow a famous rabbi. And then when they were accepted in this college, I think we'll call it, they followed, they followed a rabbi and they lived with him for a number of years, traveling around and living life together and learning together with the rabbi and the other disciples. Jesus never got to go to rabbi college. So these white-collar snobs in Nazareth are dumbfounded. How could he know what he knows? Jesus' lack of schooling offends them. Even though they know him, they choose to be offended that he won't fit their mold. And I do mean know him. Look, look, look at this. This is cool. His lineage must have been understood because their comments, oddly, they say Jesus is the son of whom? Whom do they say he's the son of? Son of? Mary. That is strange. Normal usage would have been to call Jesus son of Joseph there. Even if Joseph already died, you still call him son of Joseph. That is the accepted way to put it. The only explanation, the only explanation for calling him son of Mary is that they recognize Jesus' lineage. That stuff we talked about with the lineage of Messiah, they saw that. How damning! These people knew exactly who Jesus was. Their own words convict them. But they are determined to relegate Jesus into a comfortable, safe category that they can control. In fact, they, get so, they are so offended that they rush him outside of town. They take him to this overlook at Nazareth. It's the only cliff there. And they try and stone him by throwing him off the cliff in Nazareth. They did not succeed. Now, note the difference. Joseph accepted this heavy responsibility, and he surrendered control so God could do the work through him. It's evident in everything he does and says. While the people of Nazareth, that synagogue, ducked responsibility for what they knew, and they tried to exert their own control. Thank goodness we are never like the people of Nazareth, right? We are always like Joseph. I mean, we, we always focus on Jesus. We never just waste all God's blessings on irresponsible junk, right? We never freak out about losing control, especially not during the holidays. Yeah. You and I always focus exactly on God and what he says, Right? Maybe not. Oh, dear ones, please, let's learn to surrender control to Jesus. All God's people said. Now, Joseph and Mary had at least six other children that survived to adulthood. We don't know what Joseph taught the others. Scant evidence suggests he was a good father. With Jesus, we know. We know that he taught the boy. He apprenticed him. That's why Jesus is called Tecton. What must it have been like to train a son like that? Joseph had to shepherd the God-man king. I think Michael Card captured some of the difficulties in a poem he wrote. I know lots of poetry today, but it's so good. Okay, look, look what Michael uh, Card said. How could it be this baby in my arms sleeping now so peacefully? Son of God, the angel said. How could it be? Lord, I know he's not my own, not, not flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Still, Father, let this baby be the son of my love. Father, show me where I fit into this plan of yours. How can a man be father to the Son of God? Lord, for all my life, I've been a simple carpenter. How can I raise a king? How can I raise a king? Close quote. It's beautiful, isn't it? Brian Behrman of our elder board um, wrote me a powerful note about this. We were discussing this, and he said, uh, there were many nights, Wayne, where I was holding one of our babies, and I was listening to Michael Card's Joseph song while I was trying to calm them down and get them to go to sleep for the night. As I looked at them, this overwhelming feeling would, would come over me. God has chosen me to be the dad to this child. That song has a line that Joseph probably prayed, and I certainly have. Father, show me where I fit into this plan of yours. 
I've never stopped praying that concerning my kids. My desire is to fulfill God's plan as an example to them and others of the character of Christ. I, I fall short in many ways, but such is my aim. Thanks for teaching on Joseph who inspires us in that desire. Close quote. Thank you, Brian. Joseph shows exactly such character. He surrenders his rights in order to focus on Jesus. He apprentices his stepson. Thirdly, Joseph takes his son to worship in community. Evidence is in Luke chapter 2. Look, Luke chapter 2. Every year, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, word used there, boy, means he's not yet age of accountability. Uh, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Da, da, da. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days searching, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, and by the way, a Jewish friend of mine says, uh, this right here sounds like every Jewish mother I've ever known. <laughs> and, and I replied to him, yeah, but you got to cut her some slack. She had the only perfect son, actually, that ever really did live. Um, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. There are many fascinating things to learn here, especially about how Jesus learned directly from God the Father, as Isaiah predicted. But for time's sake, I want us again to concentrate just on the bookends of this passage, okay? Look at verses 41 and 49. They've got a contrast that just encapsulates Joseph's calling. Verse 49, Joseph is not Jesus' true father. Right? That's clear in verse 49. But look at verse 41. He is fully Jesus' earthly parent. Like any committed Hebrew dad, Joseph takes his family to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. By the way, that is a three-day journey each way from Nazareth. Slightly more effort than you and I put into coming here this morning, okay? Wherever you came from, it wasn't that much effort. Maybe the effort required explains why so many Jews made excuses not to go. Um, many young men didn't have, they didn't have the blessing that, Joseph, that Jesus has of a, of a parent like Joseph who takes them to communal worship. And there, by the way, there's a strong parallel to our time. Now, we're not under the now fulfilled Mosaic law. We don't have to go to Jerusalem every year for Passover, but we are told this, Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day, meaning the day of Jesus' return, approaching. We don't commit to the rhythm of group worship just for ourselves. You do, we are not consumers, writing out our Yelp reviews. We are a redeemed community. Look, look, look at the passage. Us hold, our hope, one another, gather together, encouraging each other. This is a communal thing. We're to be like Joseph who did whatever it took losing income for two weeks every year, paying money to travel. He didn't have a salary, folks. He wasn't paid while he traveled, okay? He did all this sacrificing to shepherd his family in this invaluable practice of communal worship. Erica Komisar is a Jewish writer. I've really enjoyed some of her books. There is some wisdom in there. I was especially struck by something she said in a column just this last week. Uh, she wrote this. She said, in an individualistic, narcissistic, and lonely society, religion provides children a rare opportunity for natural community. 
The idea that hundreds of people can gather together and sing joyful praises as a collective is a buffer against the emptiness of modern culture. It's more necessary than ever in a world where teens can have hundreds of virtual friends and few real ones, where parents are often too distracted physically or emotionally to soothe their children's distress. Today, the U.S. is a competitive, scary, stressful place that idealizes perfectionism, materialism, selfishness, and virtual rather than real human connection. Religion is the best bulwark against that kind of society. Spiritual belief and practice reinforce collective kindness, empathy, gratitude, real connection. Now, whether children choose to continue that practice as an adult is something parents cannot control, but that spiritual or religious center will benefit them their entire lives. Close quote. 2,000 years later, someone's finally cut up to Joseph. Okay, let's make sure we understand Joseph's response to this invasion of his life. Three big takeaways. Number one, Joseph finds fulfillment in serving the Son of God. His all points to Messiah. To put it poetically, he scrubs the trough for Jesus. Every time that manger wet or wet, he scrubbed the trough, filled it with fresh hay. Number two, Joe shows us how to invest in children how to shepherd them, how to train them. Dan Boland summarizes really well. He, he wrote, whether you're a dad or not, strive to mirror the life of Joseph. Obey God, serve faithfully, and help protect and direct the next generation. All God's people said. Number three, Joseph emphasizes worship in community, in community. Now, let's bring this home. Think about your family. What's your legacy? You know, most families, even Christian families, they're very much like, they're like this. We frantically make lists and we purchase and we wrap. And at Christmas, our family unwraps and flings paper everywhere. And, and everyone eventually falls into a sugar coma on the floor or the couch. And, um, and at some point, there's a moment where, usually after a few seconds of stillness, there's this thought that slowly creeps into the believer's mind. The thought creeps in, what are, what are we doing here? I mean, the stuff's fine. It's not evil. I mean, unless you're giving really scorpions to your kids. I don't think so. The stuff's fine. It expresses love. But, but what are we emphasizing, right? You know, what, what is this about? By contrast, we don't have to be like that. We can be like Joseph, folks. Presents and parties are great. But we enjoy everything as part of a life that is pointing to Messiah. We find fulfillment in serving the Son of God. It comes through in what we say and what we do and how we give and how we care for others. We invest properly in children. Now, investing properly in children, whether yours or others, means sacrificing for them. It does. It almost surely doesn't mean giving them whatever they want. That is not healthy training. And I can tell you it absolutely means using discipline and chastisement as required. And we emphasize worship in community. We bring our extended family to the, to the Christmas celebration tonight. We get, we get everybody up here for Christmas Eve, and we don't give up meeting together as redeemed community. All God's people said? Pray with me about that. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you will, that you will show us how to invest in people, that we, will be, that we will be deepened because we recognize that this shallow culture lives for nothing and we can live focused on Messiah Jesus. Father, I pray that we will commit ourselves to worshiping in community and that we will flourish in it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take our offering. Can I get a script? The one? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I want to read you something I forgot about. I wanted to read it to you. 
Uh, maybe I don't, because uh, Josh can't find it back here, and neither can I. Here it is. Ta-da! Bless you. All right. Um, I want to. I want to read. You, I want to introduce you to somebody. While we're taking the offering, look up the slide. Okay. Look up the slide. Um, if it'll go, it won't go. There it is. You see that guy right there? That's William. He's my friend. Uh, that's him at our kitchen table this week. He came over and had supper. He brought his mom. And uh, by the way, whenever you have toddlers at your house, you have to serve spaghetti. It's just too fun. It, William, William's a pretty cool kid. I enjoy him, and I enjoy his parents, too. His dad's cool as well. He's not as cool as William, but he's cool. And I, went, I, I just thought of this. I wanted to read this to you. Greg wrote this, and while we're passing the offering plate, I just thought it was, this really moved me. Listen, Greg wrote this. He said, giving is hard. Kristen and I have been at Frisco Bible for more than 10 years, and we've faithfully given our tithes to the church generally, and then additionally to missions, staff appreciation, imagine campaign, what have you. But it's never been easy to do that. At different times, it's been more or less of a financial strain. But that's not what I mean by hard. The modern trend in churches has been to do away with passing a plate because people get uncomfortable and untrusting when any religious institutions start talking about money. Wayne once told Frisco Bible, and this is true, I did, that we will always pass a plate because it should make us uncomfortable. No one wants to give up their money. No one likes the idea of owning their money to someone else, but that's the point. Besides obviously funding the cost of building and, and the staff, giving is an intentional exercise in discipline and material acknowledgement of God's ultimate ownership. It's hard to give up something we think of as ours. It's hard to admit it was never ours to begin with. It's even harder to live that out by actually giving it back, even if God only asks for a portion. But he's God, and every good thing comes from him. Regular giving keeps that in perspective. Isn't that well done? Yes, brilliantly done. Greg is right. Let me show you another thing. And he's right about giving. I saw it was fun to do that while we are passing the plate. Um, here's another thing that keeps our, our God's goodness in perspective, and that is gathering together for communal worship, just what Joseph did. So tonight, that's tonight, 6 o'clock, come here at 6 o'clock. It's going to be so fun. Uh, bring a finger food. There's going to be a ton of food. Bring a finger food of some kind. Um, it, some people really like veggies. You can bring those. That's cool. I'm sure that there's somebody like you that would enjoy that. I love people, so I bring cookies. But whatever you want to do is fine. Uh, but bring lots of good stuff. And, and we're going to come at 6. We're going to visit out there. We're going to cram in and be people spilling everywhere. And, and by the way, if, if, you, if you get here and it's looking kind of full, park on the street if you can, if you can walk that far to make room for visitors and folks. Uh, and, then, and then in the prayer hall and this other hall, there are going to be these two long lines. I won't give it away, but they're really cool little activity you do with your family as you go down the line. And you're going to walk away with something um, that is a tool that you can use to, as a gift for a neighbor to invite them to come to Christmas Eve service. And by the way, we always have lots of visitors here, both for this, but especially Christmas Eve. Some of you first came here on a Christmas. Some of you came to Christ on Christmas Eve, and we're praying for that again this year. Uh, speaking of Christmas Eve, our services on the 24th are at 3.30, 5.30, and 11. 3.30 and 5.30, children's story, great time with that. At 11, we substitute the Lord's table for that. And uh, yes, you can come to more than one. People do, and that's grand. You can come for the kid's story one hour and then come back at 11 o'clock for the Lord's table and, uh, and the rest of the service. The message is going to be the same. I don't have time to do two different messages for you, so you're just going to have to live with it twice, but it's short. So um, let's come and sing unto the Lord. By the way, tonight after we do the stuff in the hallways, we'll all come in here. We'll pack in here and we'll sing unto the Lord and enjoy. We've got the string quartets already set up, all kinds of beautiful stuff. It'll be grand. Sound good? Prayer team, why don't you come forward? Our prayer team would be honored to pray with you. They would love to pray with you. 
Um, and uh, why don't you guys stand? I'll pronounce a blessing on us, and then, and then we can be dismissed. By the way, Josh, the reason I needed that script was that uh, Greg's mom was here today, second hour, and she said, my boy wrote that. Can I have it? And so I gave it to her, and I forgot to print off another copy. <laughs> so I'm glad you had one. Thank you. Now may you and I go in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by his grace, may we positively influence family because that makes all the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, friends. See you tonight.